Hi friend, my name is Maya. Thank you for listening to Light on Living. In today's podcast, I'm really talking to all of you who reached out to me and said that you just don't feel like you're able to do enough, that you feel like you don't know what you're supposed to do, and that you feel concerned about all of these things that are going on. And so I'm not going to pretend to have new insights or know more than anybody else. All I can say is don't be afraid to look at anything now. Because in order to know what needs to change, we have to look it straight in the face. And mental health is not about hiding under the blankets and looking at funny videos and pretending that the world isn't really going on around you. It is. And we need you. We really need you. We need you now more than ever. And we need you to be awake and strong and conscious and conscientious. So I'm going to take it back to the first yama, the first step on the path to being a yogi, a light worker. Ahimsa is a Sanskrit word and it's translated as no harm, non-violence. And I found this chapter absolutely fascinating and again I'm reading from the deeper dimension of yoga by J.R. Firestein. And this is chapter 41. And the question is, is ahimsa an old-fashioned value? Homo, homini, lupus. Man is a wolf among men. Sigmund Freud, who quoted this Latin saying, remarked gloomily, who has the courage to dispute it in the face of all the evidence? An array of psychologists, sociologists and philosophers have reiterated the same view, arguing that aggression is innate in human beings, that we are programmed to attack, maim and kill. But if aggression is an innate impulse, so is gentleness and the ability to go beyond our murderous instincts. Only an utter pessimist would deny that it's impossible for us to live in peace and harmony with our fellow beings and nature at large. We do not need to murder a hundred million people by warfare and torture, as we did in the 20th century alone. We are free to follow a different course of action and we can cultivate non-violence, non-harming, ahimsa, as a viable lifestyle. This is not a utopian ideal. Here and there in the past eras, even in our own time, men and women have succeeded in living together cooperatively without war and strife. Some monastic communities have achieved this great ideal at least during part of their history. A few village communities in sheltered environs, which are too remote for curious tourists, are still achieving it today. It is done not for any high metaphysical reasons, but simply because everyone's survival depends on the spirit of cooperation. And this is an important insight that we've lost as our society has grown 
more and more complex. However, at a particular level in our personal spiritual development, nonviolence becomes something more than an economic or social exigency. It becomes an expression of the inner feeling of unity with everything. Non-aggressiveness or non-harming has been hailed as a cardinal virtue in all major religio-spiritual traditions of the world. So for centuries it has been central to yoga. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, written 2,000 years ago, non-harming is introduced as one of the five practices constituting the great vow of the moral disciplines. What does the virtue of non-harming mean to us contemporary Western yogis? Is ahimsa merely a romantic ideal, or is it, as Patanjali insists, universally and unconditionally valid? Is this still plausible in our far more complex world? In the 20th century, it was Mahatma Gandhi, a master of karma yoga, who upheld the ancient ideal of ahimsa. He also demonstrated its political effectiveness through his policy of passive resistance. Gandhi inspired the modern philosophy and practice of nonviolent social action through demonstrations, sit-ins, teachings, petitioning, fasting, and so on. Nonviolent campaigns of social reform have been surprisingly successful, bearing witness to the transformative power of non-harming. The answer to the question must be that ahimsa is as relevant today as it was at the time of Patanjali, of Gautama the Buddha, of Mahatma. What we need to examine is how we can translate the idea of non-harm into our daily practice for ourselves, our local community and our global society. The Buddha's older contemporary, Mahavira, the founder of historical Jainism, furnished extensive rules about non-harming. More than any other religious and spiritual culture in the world, Jainism abhors violence in all its numerous forms. Even today, some members of Jaina sects in India wear a mask to filter the air, not to protect themselves, but to protect the innocent lives of small little creatures that live in the air. This is a religious custom that few of us would want to follow. Nevertheless, upon closer inspection, this extreme practice contains a useful lesson. Our life is built on the sacrificial death of others. We are involuntarily murdering creatures with every breath we take. And this massacre cannot even be prevented by wearing a mask. We constantly annihilate billions of invisible microbes so that we may live. We ourselves are a link in the great food chain of life, destined to die and to become food for microbic creatures. We need not stop breathing or feeding ourselves or constantly turn the other cheek, but we must appreciate how we owe our life to other beings and how they owe their life 
to us. When we truly see this vast interconnectedness, it becomes easy for us to cultivate an attitude of reverence, reverence for all of life. And this is essentially the attitude of non-harming and ego transcending love. We must train our sensitivity to the fact that we are not alone in this universe, but we are interdependent selves of a huge cosmic body. Spiritual life is largely a matter of taking responsibility for the things that we've understood about ourselves and the world we live in. Spiritual life is taking responsibility for the things that we have understood about ourselves and the world we live in. This includes taking responsibility for our destructive aggression as it reveals itself in even subtler forms. Patanjali said 2000 years ago that non-harming must be practiced under all conditions, in thought, in word, and in deed. Our self-inspection begins with our active life. For example, we may ask ourselves whether our livelihood involves harming others in ways that are not morally justifiable. As I record this podcast, I become aware that I am co-responsible for the destruction of forests, for the increased electronic magnetization of our planet. I use my phone. I'm on the internet. At least I'm not printing on paper and taking part in the destruction of trees in that way. What can we do? I have started to take action, but I have this uneasy feeling inside of me that I need to do so much more. Another important area of self-inspection concerns our social relationships, our families, our friendships, and our business relationships. How are we destructively aggressive in our relationships? Where can we start to practice ahimsa more sincerely? How do we typically express our unlove and lack of compassion or empathy? One way to go about this is simply to ask our relatives and our friends to give us their undoubtedly painful feedback. We may find that we tend to come across overly aggressive, cold or even unapproachable. We may be told that we don't let others express themselves, that we are poor listeners. There are so many ways that we practice unlove, just as there are countless ways in which we can be more loving and more compassionate. We cause harm not only by our physical actions, but also by our speech. Words that are spoken in anger or out of inconsiderateness may hurt others as much or more than a slap in the face. Another area of psychological harm is in our competitiveness when it becomes callous. We try to outstrip each other and in the process strip ourselves and others of all dignity. Then there is the whole matter of how we maintain our body's energies and health. For those of you who are not vegans, when you consume meat, fish and eggs and dairy products, 
Quite apart from any religious consideration, we must be concerned about the fact that our dietary habits are locked into a vast industry that is not known for its ahimsa values. The meals we eat come from factory farmed animals that are widely treated with unbelievable cruelty because animals don't feel pain the way we do. Cows are kept artificially pregnant to yield milk while their calves are deprived of motherly affection, forced to eat a monotonous milk-replacing diet to ensure that their flesh will be as white as us, the market, demands. Chickens are de-beaked and cooped up in torturously small cages. Pigs are tail-docked and kept in minuscule pens in the dark, forced to eat from sheer boredom, doing nothing but waiting to be slaughtered in often brutal ways. The most horrendous practice of animal husbandry is that of feeding cows the pulverized meat of their own species, which was the cause of mad cow disease. Bovines are by nature vegetarians and feeding them meat violates their own biology and recently led to the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of cows in Europe. This book was written a while ago. Our food habits endorse an industry running to some $50 billion a year. Again, this book is old. And these habits blatantly violate the idea of non-harming. It also contributes in a major way to the massive degradation of our environment. Our medical needs and choices have a similarly tragic effect because they support the often gruesome exploitation of animals in laboratories. Similarly, our hunger for entertainment leads to animal abuse in various, various ways, from hunting to rodeos, rodeos and races, to seemingly innocuous zoos and circuses. Much could also be said about how our conspicuous consumption directly or indirectly disadvantages other nations, causing hunger and plight to millions of our fellow humans. Every single action has a karmic reaction. All of our actions have moral repercussions. For instance, doing our duty as an upright citizen involves paying taxes each year. But our taxes help support a vast military industry that revolves around violence and which in effect leads to countless deaths and untold pain around the world. It would be foolish to withhold taxes, but we can work for a long overdue tax reform and more importantly protest against the ways in which our tax money is spent. Finally, the idea of non-harming is not confined to physical or verbal expression. Our very thoughts are powerful. Our thoughts determine the subtle ways in which we relate to life, especially how we interact with others. If we're down, we tend to drag our environment down. If we're emotionally buoyant, our happiness uplifts those around us. Even if we do not mean to harm another person, our coldness or indifference is a form of harming. Whenever we are not present as love, we inevitably reduce our own life and the life in others. Hence, we are responsible for how we are present in the world, even when we are on our own, because our field is interconnected with the fields of everyone and everything else.
Ahimsa, as a manifestation of self-transcending love, is a building block of spiritual practice. Genuine yoga is impossible without the practice of Ahimsa, and Ahimsa is definitely as current today as it ever was. And I notice myself reading these words, becoming more and more aware of my role and reminding myself and you so that you can remind the others why we're here, what we came here to do, and the changes that we need to take part in so that we can co-create these new ways of being that we need to manifest now. And the power of peaceful resistance, the power of trusting humanity as a whole, of trusting each other, that we can do better, we must do better. Each one of us carries that key. Thank you so much for listening. I love you. I hope that you share this episode because we need it now. We need to practice ahimsa, not just on our mats, And not just with ourselves, but in the bigger, bigger, bigger picture of which we are all a part. I'm playing my part. Thank you.